0: Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a review so others can find the show too. My guest today is Dr. Ian Burke. Ian is the R.J. Cook Endowed Chair of Wheat Research and a professor in weed science at Washington State University. Ian started working in weed science in 1999 and joined the faculty at WSU in 2006. His research program is focused on basic aspects of weed biology and ecology with the goal of integrating such information into practical and economical methods of managing weeds in the environment. Hello, Ian. Hello, Drew. So um, I guess you and I both uh, received just shy of $103,000 from the Washington Grain Commission in this current fiscal year for, for our weed science programs. What do these funds allow us to do? That wouldn't happen without the additional support. Yeah, the funds are really critical for a couple of different
1: uh, parts of our programs, right? So uh, over the last 20 years, there's been a substantial decline in the number of new herbicides that are being introduced into our area. And uh, many of the older herbicides that we conduct experiments with aren't supported by companies that that research just wouldn't occur without the Grain Commission support because there's just not support from private industry for this research. And so that you know that's a really critical component of our programs that simply wouldn't occur without the Grain Commission funding. The other thing that occurs as a consequence of that funding is uh intensive sampling for weeds and evaluations of of grower submitted samples. And so you know, we we do uh we, you know, we still get something like um, 30 to 50 samples submitted per season. Um, we've gotten a lot more efficient at, at assessing those samples for a whole host of, of resistances. And uh, we, we like to uh, pride ourselves on getting a response back uh, within just a few months on, on what that resistance is. So that the Grand Commission funding does that too. But the best part about uh, what we're able to do as weed scientists is leverage the funding. So, uh, we're able to, uh, you know, identify other sources of funding that uh, we could use as match. So we currently match uh, at least one of our grain commission projects with Washington State Committee for Pesticide Registration funding, um, and that that would also not happen without the grain commission funding. That's a stipulation of that match is that there's commission funding to to support it, and so uh, the grain commission funding's. I'm working in a lot of different ways in weed science. Um you know, just just the fundamental efficacy program, but in other aspects too.
0: And in my program, it allows me to work on weeds that are important here in Washington, but maybe not much outside. Smooth scouring rush is one I've been working on that um I don't think I'd be able to work on without the support of the Green Commission. So it it's uh it allows us to do some things that wouldn't get done otherwise 'cause to get federal dollars, you have to address problems that are an issue at the federal level. and Some some of our weed problems are quite unique to the Pacific Northwest.
1: It also allows for adaptive capacities. So when a new problem arises, it often arises in a way that, that makes it difficult to respond with federal funding. It might take us years to get funding to work on a new problem, whereas um, – you know, a farmer approaches us with a particular issue. I you know, I have several examples just this year alone for weeds I'd never heard of, never had any experience with, but while I'm, we're able to, we have the people on staff because of this funding, we can respond and, and identify methods to control these new weeds. And that's that's really powerful.
0: Well, a weed that's, I wouldn't say is new, unless you go back to the uh, late 1800s, uh, Russian thistle is on a lot of growers' minds this year. You drive around the country and you can see fields that are fairly clean, but you can also see fields that are just green with Russian thistle plants after harvest. Um, let's talk about Russian thistle. What are some of the the issues around this uh, weed and why maybe is it such a problem this year? Um, because, yeah, there's a lot of interest in that one.
1: You know, I... I um we you know we've worked on russian thistle um really since we started here um it's one of the primary weeds in the low rainfall zone and we have research that goes on there and so it's just naturally one of the um primary weeds of uh, our both our programs and i you know i don't know if i've ever seen uh a year quite like this one and i i have to think it's because of the heat the early onset of summer summer temperatures in may uh, really set Russian thistle up to succeed in a way it doesn't normally um, have an opportunity to. Uh, it has a very unusual form of photosynthesis. So you know, back in in college and high school, I know we all learned about the C3 and C4 photosynthetic pathways, and we all learned about the parallel veins on the corn leaf, and that's supposed to be C4 photosynthetic pathway, and and the and the and the photosynthetic apparatus is built. Around separation of several different chemical reactions, uh, that's not how Russian thistle works. It's it's got a subcellular localization of the C4, which is really unique, and it enables to be ables enables it to be the most water use efficient weed I think we have. Um, it also has a very hard um, woody sort of growth pattern later in the season. Uh, I think it develops a very thick cuticle. Uh, and if you're not timely and catch it early, there's just no way to get the herbicide into the plant. The plant has an overall growth form that really minimizes the ability for droplets to penetrate down into the into the canopy of the plant. And so you kind of combine all that together, and it's it's really a, the perfect weed for low rainfall zone uh, growth. And uh, you combine that all together, and I think that that kind of explains some of the problems we're seeing this year.
0: I know in my extension talks I often talk about you gotta get this one early because once it's established, it's a monster. Um but it as a small plant it actually is a is a weakling, but it quickly develops into uh quite quite the troublesome weed to control after that. Um, I also wonder whether this year, um, our crops just weren't as competitive. So, you know, it allowed them to get established and and not have the competent like winter wheat is normally pretty competitive with it, spring wheat less so. But, uh, you know, we a lot of crops, especially out in the dry areas, were really struggling and not as competitive as they might have normally been.
1: I agree with that. The The ability for that weed to establish early in, in sort of April and May and sit in the canopy um, in a way that you don't necessarily see it unless you're scouting pretty intensively, is a real benefit for it. And then when you harvest, you release it into a essentially no canopy environment. It's able to grow and, and reproduce pretty quickly. And there's no real financial incentive to treat it in that situation. Although uh, management of any sort of seed it produces, in my mind, requires some action post-harvest. That's the, the time to potentially go out and deal with it the trouble we have is that we don't have have very few products where it can actually kill it in that sort of situation. Uh, A lot of the systems that I know of you vibe have worked on, and we've had experience with um, watching uh, Aaron Esser up at the Wookiee farm attempt to manage these weeds uh, involve, you know, timely applications of pre-emergence herbicides going into the fallow. And, uh, and that minimizes the, the growth of the plants that might germinate later when the pre-emergent herbicides maybe don't have as much activity. In my mind, that's that's sort of setting us up for success in the crop, where we've reduced the overall number of weed seeds that might be present in the system all the way back at the beginning of the fallow. So that's how I started thinking about managing this particular weed.
0: Yeah, and that um you know it's interesting that the seed of Russian thistle isn't what we normally think of for seeds and, and generally it's not considered to be long-lived. Can you talk a little bit about the that issue and why, like you say, managing the weeds so you don't get much seed production is really key to this whole thing?
1: Yeah, I think that's the, the sort of the weakness of the, the species is that it doesn't have a very long-lived seed. The seed are essentially sort of pre-germinated plants um, and they don't last long in the environment amusingly we have a a heck of a time getting the 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 seed to even germinate and grow in our greenhouses we have to there's a very special procedure we have to go through just to get them established so you know another example of how weeds are very well suited to growing in our our fields but then when we try and actually grow them in our greenhouse, we can't do it um but it because that the length of that seed the longevity of that seed is so short um it is one that you can really target for for management of the seed bank, minimize the total amount of seed production. Hopefully your neighbors are doing the same so they don't get new material rolling in on onto your well-managed fields. And then you, uh, uh, in just a couple of years, you can usually see a pretty uh, significant decline in the overall population.
0: I know um, after harvest this year, I went out to the Lynn Research Station and as you drive along, you'd see one field that was just really clean not much of anything out there and then you look on the other side of the road and just a solid carpet of of green which um looked to me to be mostly russian thistle how does how does a grower deal with that when maybe they do a good job but but their neighbor doesn't and this is a tumbleweed it does move
1: yeah it's unfortunate um there's not a really good way to deal with that sort of situation uh one of my uh rural sociologist colleagues kind of compared it compared it to the, to the analogy of raking leaves, right? So you rake your leaves in your yard every year and you take good care of it. And then one good windstorm and the guy next door who hasn't raked their leaves, their leaves are now in your yard. And so you don't necessarily go to the next door neighbor and complain about them not raking their leaves. Um, although I would argue that we probably need to be cultivating the relationships to be able to do that. And, Um, Because this is a weed that can cross boundaries in this way. Uh, So there's some sort of structural issues I think we have to address because of the nature of how a weed like Russian thistle spreads that I don't think we do a very good job of. A road is no boundary for Russian thistle. um, And so it's very likely that those two fields are connected by the wind. As that Russian thistle breaks off and tumbles in the fall, it'll grow right... You go downwind into the next field that might be weed free, and so you want to you do want to be prepared to um, to have those kind of hard conversations about managing weeds that are upwind of you, <laughs> so to speak. So, but I don't know that I have an easy answer for that one.
0: It, that is a different I know uh, Judah Parasso down in Oregon State is trying in a limited area to do some some work with a group of growers that have agreed to try to keep keep it under control and put up fences to catch it and do some things like that. It'll be interesting to see what what happens from that kind of perspective. But it, it it's not something growers can deal with just by themselves, although the more they can do to control the seed bank, I guess, the better.
1: Interestingly, the uh, research that Judith's doing has yielded evidence that fences are no boundaries either because they'll pile up on one side of the, the fence and then the next plants that come along can just tumble right over the fence and so that does take numbers of plants to get to that point and so anything we can do to to minimize the total number of russian thistle out there that might tumble is going to be a win
0: okay i i know uh, in western nebraska they could actually take down fences so they pile up and then you get a heavy heavy wet snow and then the fence comes down so it's there they can be rather problematic you know i i noticed in western nebraska we had russian thistle but it was always in association with Kosha, so it was not the um, solid, uh, homogenous group, um, and we do have some kochia moving out. It tends to be in the basin, right? But it's it's been moving out the last few years, and that you know, it's a lot of those plants are resistant to uh, glyphosate. But a f- few years back, we found that Russian thistle was as well. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about? Uh, glyphosate resistance, because that's what a lot of growers have used in the past to control Russian thistle during fallow, and that seems to be a less effective means all the time.
1: Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, glyphosate has been a relatively inexpensive and very effective tool for years. You know, I think there's a couple of different options if you if you know for certain that you have glyphosate resistant Russian thistle, and these days, um, if you have Thistle sort of down that three ninety five corridor it's likely russian it's like it's likely glyphosate resistant so uh you know we found alternatives like paraquat and uh, old bermxxiil to be relatively effective you know there are rules governing how you can use those two herbicides um, and you want to make sure you follow the labels pretty closely for those uh they're not as Inexpensive as glyphosate, and that's the really frustrating situation we find ourselves in when we have resistance like this evolve. Uh, The benefit of of both paraquat and bromoxynil, though, is that they tend to be uh, better at at controlling larger Russian thistle later in hotter conditions. And so, when you're dealing with Russian thistle in that sort of situation, you want to up your carrier volume and and maybe carefully consider what kind of droplet size you would need to penetrate that Russian thistle canopy. So you get really, really good coverage. Uh, we found that to be a pretty good recipe for success. And it seems like all the farmers I to talk to have their own little special recipe that they like to really hammer the Russian thistle with later in the season. Um, just through hard-earned experience in those late summer months where it's really hot. Um, you gotta come up with something that's a little different than the normal glyphosate application. There's also uh, you know, growing adoption of these uh weed sensing sprayer systems. That does allow farmers to potentially put uh, a lot more active ingredient per plant, but uh, always try and caution everyone when you have really dense populations of of Russian thistle that you can radically exceed the total amount of active ingredient you're allowed on that label per acre using one of those systems if you mix up a really, really um, concentrated mix. And so there is a balancing act. You do need to be aware of how much material you're using per acre and make sure you 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 stay in line with what the label says you're allowed to do with those systems.
0: I think those systems also might allow you to use that higher carrier volume so that when you do spray a plant you 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 get it with a lot of carrier and hopefully get better coverage.
1: And and you can also you know the nozzles that come with those systems can be adjusted in a way that maybe you get uh you activate early um and and spray up one side and down the other side. You're not going to see the sort of, these are digital systems. Plants are not digitally shaped. They're not perfect little rectangles out there. So um, there is, you're already still using more than you would um, if it could spray sort of perfectly shaped um, plant size, but there's still a lot of savings to be realized. Um, you just got to be really careful about how you set that thing up and, and, uh, the concentrations of material you mix. But carrier bomb can be adjusted very easily.
0: And that's one of the issues with Russian thistle. You and I have worked uh, with a former graduate student, John Spring, and and Sam Revolinsky, I believe, um, where we sample. You know, we have, if you look at Russian thistles, they come in all different shapes and sizes. And uh, I, I guess early on, I was thinking maybe there's different biotypes, but they, they took a look and... And you understand the genetics better than I do. Can you explain a little bit of what what their finding was?
1: Yeah, so it it has what we call very low isolation by distance, um, which is a fancy term for saying that most of the Russian thistle that we encounter in the Pacific Northwest is very uh, similar genetically. Uh, so field to field, because of how it tumbles, and how uh, every year there's always some distribution of that that plant by tumbling, and then it also uh, can cross-pollinate. Uh, the overall genetic variation from plant to plant is very low. So everyone's dealing with essentially the same. Plant to plant variation is low, but it has a high level of genetic variation, right? It, so it's, a, it's sort of a, it's a double-edged sword. It it's, um, it's very well-suited. It has all the tools it needs to adapt to a, a new environment very easily. Um, and it doesn't really matter where it comes from. When it does show up, it already has all those tools because it has <clears> – <throat> because these new populations are – populations that would roll into a new area have a have a you know, significant proportion of the total genetic
0: variation of the species. Okay. So another reason why it's so, so tough to deal with. All right. Well, Russian thistle is the topic of the day. I think we can find another topic down the road. Uh, seems like there's always a, a weed to talk about, but um, – this is one that's been problematic this year and always is really in the, in the low rainfall area. So thanks for joining me today, Ian, and discussing a little bit about this troublesome weed, Russian thistle. Thank you, Drew. Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheatbeat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear in future episodes, please email me at drew.lion. That's l y o n at w s u edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications and the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time.
1: The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.